This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Right now, I do want to take you back to our Bloomberg Live event, our Invest Global virtual event happening right now on Bloomberg Radio and TV as well. Uh, we have with us joining uh, is U.S. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin joining David Rubenstein of the Carlyle Group. He's the co-founder and co-executive chairman. Let's listen in. We'd like to do a stimulus bill. Unclear whether it's uh, uh, something that other Republicans want to do on Capitol Hill. What is your view on the likelihood of another bill, and what is the timing for that? Well, David, it's something we're very seriously considering. Uh, The president has been clear that we put a lot of money into the economy. We had an unprecedented response on a bipartisan basis in, in the last CARES bill, and there's no question that money is having a major impact on the economy, whether it's the PPP, which impacted 50 million workers, or whether it's the direct payments of over 160 million or enhanced unemployment, these are all having an important part of protecting American workers and American business. I actually just left the uh, Republican Senate lunch, and we are beginning to discuss the different aspects of what another bill would look like. We want to take our time because, number one, Uh, There's a lot of money we still haven't put out. And number two, we want to make sure whatever we do going forward is much more targeted to the businesses that are most impacted. The the timing, you think that it's likely that sometime uh, in July a bill might pass both houses? I do. That that would be the timing. Okay. And uh, the negotiations, uh, there are some people who think that you are not tough enough on the Democrats. And therefore, some Republicans are saying that you should have a partner, Mark Meadows or somebody else, to negotiate. But in your view, you'll be the principal person negotiating with the Congress on this legislation. Is that right? Well, David, I mean, let me first be clear. Uh, What I'm doing, I'm doing at the direction of the president and the president's policies. Uh, Last time, Mark had just come on board, and I asked Mark to come up with me. He He was very critical in helping with the last bill. So we have a great teamwork, and he will be there with me. Uh, but let me just say, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that the last two bills were 96 to 0 and 100 to 0. So th- this isn't a question of being tough enough or not being tough enough. We had unprecedented bipartisan support at a time when it was critical to get money into the economy and to help American workers. The parts that are the various bills that have passed so far, which do you think has been the most effective so far? Uh, the PPP, the unemployment insurance, uh, the other loan programs, which are you think are, think is working the best so far? Well, David, as, as you know, because you, you've lived through other financial times, uh, th- this is a very, very different situation than we've ever seen before. This is the first time that we've shut down the entire U.S. economy because of a virus, and we, we had to have a different approach. And the reason I, I mean a different approach was it was very important to get money into the economy quickly. Things that took four or five or six months, 
even if they in the long term worked better, would not have been effective. So we needed to have a range of tools. And if you look at the CARES Act, there were different tools that we used to put massive amounts of money into the economy. Uh, obviously, as I just mentioned before, you had the PPP, you had the direct payments, you had the unemployment. We also had a program for the airlines, which was, was very critical. We had $450 billion that we could work with the Federal Reserve on the 13-3 facilities, and this really worked perfect. The mere announcement of some of these facilities unlocked the markets. E even without spending a penny of taxpayer dollars, it unlocked to the point where, you know, we've had unprecedented corporate issuance. Companies like Boeing, which I thought were going to need to come to us in our national security program, borrowed $25 billion in the market without putting a penny of taxpayer money at risk. So uh, right now, uh, would you say that uh, the, the legislation that you've passed is working reasonably well, but are, would you say the Fed has done as good a job as you would like them to do? They have a lending program, which I think has not yet actually lent money. And can you say whether the president is happy today or happier today with the secretary, with the head of the Federal Reserve? Well, I think I think the Federal Reserve has done a phenomenal job. We, we speak to them almost on a daily basis. These programs are a combination of work of the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. And I think we've worked very well together. Every single one of these programs is now up and running. So we have a municipal bond program. We have a money market program. We have a commercial paper program. We have a Main Street program that's now up and running. We have a corporate primary and secondary. We had a program that lent to, to banks and non-banks for PPP loans. So the, the Fed acted in unprecedented response. And yes, I, I think you've seen the president is very pleased with what the Fed has been doing. Okay. In terms of uh, these programs, they do cost money. So the debt of the United States has increased a fair bit, I think maybe $4 trillion or something like that. Are you worried about the impact of that either on the dollar or on inflation? Well, David, this is, this is like a war. Fight, fighting this virus is like fighting a war. And the president and I were determined to spend what we needed to spend to protect the American workers and the American public. This was not their fault. So no different than going into a war. You don't say, I'm going to stop here and, and, and deal with the consequences. I think over the long term, the good news is long-term interest rates are very low. So the cost of this debt is very low. We're, we're borrowing a lot of money long term. We have a lot of liquidity. Uh, the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. So we have a lot of liquidity in borrowing. And yes, over time, we're going to need to deal with the debt. Uh, I think you have to look at both the debt as a percentage of GDP and a percentage of, of what it costs to, to carry it. So these are things we'll look at over time. In terms of the loans that uh, are being made now, at one point you had said it was important not to reveal who the borrowers were. Recently you've said you think it's okay to disclose. Uh, why did you change your mind or why did the government change its position? Well, David, let, let me clarify. When, when we negotiated these deals on a bipartisan basis, uh, we agreed to an unprecedented level of transparency and oversight. And we didn't need to do this, but we agreed within the Federal Reserve programs and within the programs coming from the Treasury, the direct loans, there would be complete transparency. And that was very clear. We never really discussed the specifics of the PPP. 
Now, it is true when the SBA makes 7A loans, they, they are transparent. The issue here was you had businesses that took loans based upon their payroll. And, and no different, we're not publicizing everybody's name who is getting enhanced unemployment. We wanted to make sure we protected small businesses, the confidentiality of their payroll. So I think we've struck the appropriate balance on protection and transparency. And what we just agreed on a bipartisan basis with the SBA committee is that we would release the names on about 75% of the dollars and about 25% of the actual loans. So that's all loans above 150,000. And we'll put them in buckets. So you don't know the exact size, but we'll bucket them. Uh, there'll be, you know, 150 to 350. I, I think it's uh, a million to 2 million, uh, 5 million to 10 million, various different buckets. And on the very small loans, 150,000 and below, we'll release the details of the names, but not the borrowers. So I, I think we got to an important compromise of transparency on the majority of the money with the idea of protecting very small businesses, sole proprietors, and, and, and others' uh, confidentiality. Okay. Uh, in this quarter, we have slipped into a recession, and according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, which makes the official determinations of when you're in a recession or not. Uh, do you think by the end of this year, we might be out of the recession? David, I, I, I do, but the, the traditional economic metrics are, aren't really appropriate given we shut down the economy. So first, let me say, there were way too many people that lost their jobs and got laid off. And, and again, we're not going to be done until we get every single one of those people back to work. So I'm not really focused on the technical issue of it is a recession or it's not a recession. I'm focused on helping all these small businesses and all the workers. And that, that's what our job. And I think you saw the recent employment numbers. People thought there'd be another 8 million people unemployed. We put 2.5 million people back to work. Clearly, this is the PPP working. And you saw great retail sales. I, I think you're going to see... The economy had a very bad second quarter. I think you're going to see a spectacular rebound off the bottom in the third quarter. Now, some people who have been gotten the PPP loans are very happy with them, but they say it's unclear whether they uh, have to repay them or not. Will the SBA clarify who actually has to repay or not repay those loans? Well, the good news is, uh, again, I think we struck the right balance here. And for, for all loans that are less than $2 million, we created a safe harbor around the certification unless there's things like fraud. And for loans over $2 million, they're going to go through an electronic review to make sure that the companies needed the money in the certification. And I, I think that'll be a very fair process as we go through that. If you owe taxes on April the 15th, you could file on July the 15th. Is there any consideration, as some people have speculated, that it might be postponed once again uh, to maybe September 15th? Well, David, it's something I'm thinking about. As of now, we're not intending on doing that, but it is something we may consider. Uh, I, I am pleased to report that I think it was absolutely the right thing to do at the time because we, we were absolutely worried about people couldn't get to their accountants, couldn't get their information. And uh, I'm pleased to report that returns filed are down only 10% year over year. 
and refunds are down over only 10%. So the majority of Americans have filed. The majority of those people that needed to get refunds got them. I, I'd encourage all Americans, if you can file your tax returns, go ahead and do it, particularly if you think you have a refund. And we'll, we'll look carefully as we, we approach this July date. Okay. Now, you've talked about shutting down the economy, which obviously we had to do and was done. But you've also said recently that we can't do it again because we just can't afford to do it. So are you worried that new COVID cases are breaking out in states like Florida or Texas? And how will you deal with that in terms of opening up the economy again, but also protecting the safety of people? Well, David, I, I think the president made the absolute right decision. It was a very difficult decision in, in shutting down the entire economy. The issues that we were concerned about at the time were hospitals were getting way overcrowded. We had issues of ventilators and we had issues of not having enough medicines. Um, I, I think, you know, kind of we had an unprecedented effort, especially in places like New York, where we built out extra hospital beds in the convention center. We, we sent the, uh, the Navy ship there to be ready as a hospital. And, and the good news is those never needed to be used. Um, right now, we're in a different situation. Right now, we have plenty of capacity. We've got plenty of ventilators. We've made great progress on viral treatments. And we've had made great progress on, on testing. So I, I think this is going to be an issue that we have to look at on a local-by-local -local basis. Uh, where there are breakouts, there'll, there'll be contract tracing. Um, and I think we're just in a completely different situation. So I, I, I think it would be highly unlikely we get to a point where we need to shut the economy down again. Okay. You were one of the principal negotiators with Bob Lighthizer of the deal with China. Are you confident that the Chinese can honor the commitments to buy the products from the United States that they agreed to? I have every expectation that they will. They have uh, continued to tell us that they will, uh, as recently as last week when Secretary Pompeo met with one of the senior people uh, that flew in from China and they, they, they had a summit. So uh, I, have that, I have that expectation that they will lead up to their obligation. Now, having said that, um, let me just comment on, I think the world wants a lot more transparency on COVID. How did it start? How did it spread? How did it spread around the world? And it didn't spread within China. So we shouldn't confuse these two issues. Yes, we have expectations that they will live up to their trade agreements, but we also have expectations they need a lot more transparency around the disease. There is not more transparency. Do you think there will be a decoupling with the Chinese economy and the U.S. economy? I think you have talked about that recently, uh, but you see that as being separate than the trade agreement. But are you worried about or do you think it could be appropriate to have a decoupling at some point? Well, I don't want to speculate, David. It could. Um, I think you have a lot of companies that are beginning to look at their supply chains and making sure they diversify them. And I think that's something that's prudent to do wherever they are around the world. You have a lot of companies that are looking at bringing jobs back to the U.S. because of our tax incentives in, in other areas. As we have said all along, if we can compete with China on a fair and level playing field, it is a great opportunity for U.S. businesses and U.S. workers as China has a large growing middle class, several hundred million people. But if we can't participate and compete on, on a fair basis, then you are going to see a decoupling uh, going forward. 
So the Chinese government is thinking about changing the ways in which it uh, operates and oversees Hong Kong. Uh, the president has been concerned about that, so has Secretary Pompeo. If the Chinese government were to go forward with legislation considering, do you think the U.S. government might impose some type of sanctions to show its disapproval of what's going on? Well, David, it's, it's our policy. We don't comment on future sanctions, but what I will comment on is uh, the, the president, and this was a few weeks ago at his Rose Garden speech, uh, instructed me to convene what's called the president's working group on capital markets. This is myself and all the major regulators, and, and we're looking at all of these issues very carefully as it relates to both Hong Kong and as it relates to uh, Chinese issuance on, on the U.S. exchanges. Okay. Now, recently there was a report that we're running out of, not running out of, but we're having a little uh, uh, less demand for, less uh, supply, I should say, of coins. We have a lot of dollar bills, I guess, in circulation, but because of COVID, we don't have as many coins. So what are you going to do about that? Well, David, let me first say I want to thank the hardworking men and women at the Bureau of Engraving and at the Mint. Uh, and that, that's where we make both the money and where we make the coins. And through this entire period, they didn't shut down production. And, and matter of fact, as it relates to uh, circulating money uh, in, in bills, we had unprecedented deliveries to the Federal Reserve, which they were able to put in, in, into the various banks. As it relates to coins, because so, business, so many businesses shut down, a lot of coins got stuck. In, in the system. So we, we got a little bit far behind on coins, but I know they're redoubling their efforts and that, that'll work out fine. Well, I have a lot of pennies and quarters at my house. Maybe I can drop them off somewhere and help in some modest way. I'll let you know. So we'll let take, me we'll ask take you- take as many as you have, David. I know you got plenty of them. Okay. So um, being Secretary of the Treasury in a normal time is not easy, very busy, one of the most important jobs in Washington or in the country. But during this time, you've been, you know, working around the clock. Have you had any time to just breathe, any time to see your family? How are you, are you working out of your office? You're working out of your home? How are you getting through this period of time? Um, I'm working out of the Treasury. So basically every day I go from my home to the Treasury to the White House, which is right next door and back. Um, we, we've had about 150 people working around the clock. In, in the Treasury and the rest of the people working telecommuting. I think like a lot of businesses, we were actually pleasantly surprised that a lot of areas we could effectively work by telework. There were other areas like the IRS where it was much harder to do certain things. You can't open the mail. We had truckloads of mail backup and, and physical returns and audits. But uh, I want to thank we had an enormous uh, group of people here that have been working around the clock and uh, I'll have plenty of time to rest down the, down the road. My family understands that. Exercise, there's any time to just uh, just relax a little bit or walk or exercise or you have no time for that try, now? Try, trying to do a little bit of exercise. Ne never enough, but trying to do a little bit. So uh, as you go forward, uh, you obviously uh, enjoy the job and you obviously are well respected by many of your colleagues. Um, so if President Trump is reelected, would you be interested in serving another four years in this position? Yes, David, as I said before, I, I would be, but that's for the president to decide. Okay. And going forward, what kind of advice would you give to anybody else who serves as Secretary of Treasury at some point? What is the best thing to do and what's the thing you should avoid being, doing as Secretary of Treasury? 
Well, the, the interesting part about Secretary of Treasury is it spans across so many different parts of the government. So a, a large part of the job is domestic and international finance. A very big part of the job is just operational. We, we, we manage a lot of the payment processing, obviously all the borrowings for the government. And something that I've spent a lot of my time on, and I think I've talked about this before, pr prior to COVID, I was probably spending 50% of my time on national security issues because sanctions have been such an important part of our national security strategy. And despite John Poulton's uh, comments in the books complaining that I didn't do enough sanctions, it's really somewhat ridiculous. Since under President Trump, we've done more sanctions than any previous administrations combined. But we've had a very unified approach, myself, Secretary Pompeo, DOD, and the CIA, as to how we approach the national security issues. Hey, the stock market is roughly where it was before we went into the recession. Why do you think the stock market seems to be so ebullient, relatively strong, when the economy is not as strong as the stock market? Has that been a surprise to you as somebody who used to spend a lot of time in the markets? Well, David, having spent a lot of time in the markets, as I always like to say, I, I, I'm not good at predicting where they are going to be tomorrow or next week. I am good at predicting where they're going to be in the future. I think what you've seen, and first let me just say, the stock market is a market of stocks. So certain stocks have done phenomenally well. You, you look at companies like Apple that are great companies. And, and again, COVID is not going to have a giant impact on their business. And they're a technology leader. You look at some of the retailers, and they've had a pretty difficult situation. Uh, if you haven't been a major retailer, you know, you had your stores closed, you're already dealing with online issues. And uh, the fact that interest rates came down obviously also changes valuations. But I think the bigger issue is the U.S. is the, still the bright spark of the economic growth around the world. People have confidence that our economy is going to come back in the third and fourth quarter. And people want to invest in the U.S. So as part of a new bill, if a bill does go through Congress, uh, would an infrastructure be part of it? The president has talked about having an infrastructure bill. Would that be a separate or would that possibly be part of a stimulus bill or a relief bill? I, I think, as you know, the president's been very interested in infrastructure since the campaign. It's something we've been talking about on a bipartisan basis. Uh, the president's interested in roads and bridges and tunnels. And we continue to have those conversations. The issue with infrastructure is normally these are not shovel ready. So normally these, even if we pass something, this isn't going to impact getting people back to work in September and October. So I think that the likelihood is the CARES, the next CARES bill is going to be very focused on, we want to make sure that 20 million people that don't have jobs because of COVID get back to work. And that's going to be our focus and for them to get back to work quickly. How do you keep up with your colleagues around the world who are the finance ministers of major countries that we have relationships with? Do you regularly consult with them or do you do it one-on-one? -on -one? How do you do that right now during this crisis? Well, I have very good relationships with a lot of my counterparts, so I do speak to them on a regular basis. Also this year, uh, the United States is chairing the G7 presidency. So uh, I convene pretty much every other week a call of the G7 finance ministers or deputies. We tend to rotate. So we're, we're in direct communication. And one of the things I've said to all of them is now it's even more important than ever that we are working together 
uh, as we all battle this disease and, and focus on rebuilding our economies. So do you worry about the impact of COVID on the uh, emerging markets, which uh, you know, have a different currency, which is relatively weaker against the dollar recent months or so? Are you worried about the economies uh, in those countries being able to repay debt that they may owe to people in the United States? Well, uh, I am worried about that. We're doing a lot of work at the IMF and the World Bank on those economies. We've, we've created a debt moratorium for the particularly poor countries because what they're going through. And that, that's something we are definitely focused on is, is working with the poorest countries. We're also very focused on what we call debt transparency, making sure that it's transparent when countries borrow, whether it's from China or Europe or anywhere in the world, that there's transparency into the situation. Now, in the last recession, 10 years ago or so, the banks were in pretty big trouble and they had to be, in effect, given additional capital by the United States at some points. Um, right now, you think the banks are in very good shape and our financial institutions are safe and strong despite the COVID uh, crisis? I, I do, David. Unlike last time, as you said, uh, the bank capital rules have changed. The mix of their books have changed. You don't have these problem mortgages that you had last time. Underwriting's gotten much better. So the banks had very good capital and very good liquidity coming into this. And I, I think what we've seen is in the beginning of COVID, there was a big uh, run to draw revolvers. And I, I think we've seen a lot less of that. And my understanding of speaking to the major bank CEOs, the typical mid-market companies, uh, again, if they're not in retail and entertainment and restaurant, if they're not in the areas that are particularly hard hit, have a reasonable amount of liquidity and borrowing power. So the first Treasury Secretary was Alexander Hamilton, and you probably have seen the play Hamilton. So do you ever get any whispers at night from the ghost of Hamilton saying you're doing a good job or do this or do that, or uh, you just uh, imagine what he might be recommending that you do? All, all the time, David. I got I got a big portrait of him. He stares at me at my desk, and uh, occasionally he gives me some good advice. Okay. Steve, Mr. Secretary, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate your giving us the, your insights, and good luck on all the things you're working on. Thank you, David. All right. You've been listening to our Bloomberg Live Invest Global virtual event. The Carlisle Group's co-founder and co-executive chairman, uh, David Rubenstein, catching up with our U.S. Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin. And of course, some of the key headlines uh, were a bunch, actually, a lot listening um, uh, or talking about the economy. Um, he said, the secretary uh, said that they are very seriously considering another stimulus and that they discussed aspects of, a of another stimulus bill uh, with senators and said it could pass possibly by July. He did talk, uh, Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, about it being more targeted to those businesses who need it. He also talked about the economic outlook and said he does expect, like many that we talked to here on Bloomberg, that there would be a bad second quarter and thinks that we will see a spectacular rebound off of the third quarter, does think that we will be out of, of a recession by the end of the year, but then went on to certainly point out 
about how we need to watch all of those that will still be out of works, uh, out of work. One more thing, though, highly unlikely that we will get to a point where we would have to shut down the economy again, this on a day when we continue to see uh, spikes in virus cases around the country. All right. Be sure to check out Bloomberg Live on the Bloomberg Terminal for more of these conversations from our Invest Global virtual event. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly, wandering into the studio. Carol Masser, uh, mm. does this start at two or yeah. three? Yeah, it starts at two. You missed two killer interviews, um, but I know you'll catch up later. Uh, certainly the U.S. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin just wrapping up with David Rubenstein. And then we heard from Carmen Reinhardt of the World Bank. So lots of uh, talk about the outlook. I feel like Carmen Reinhardt, a little bit more cautious than Stephen Mnuchin. Yeah, well, that probably checks out, right? I mean, it's Mnuchin's job to be a little uh, enthusiastic, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we did feel that. And there's talk of another stimulus. As you know, that's certainly given some support uh, to the financial markets. We do need to get into, though, our Bloomberg economics today, uh, because what's interesting is, you know, we know, Jason, you and I have talked about how Americans have managed to put aside some money in savings in this shutdown, right? You're not out there spending as much money maybe as you, you were in the past. That's the good news. The bad news is, as Bloomberg News personal finance editor Ben Steverman reports, it may not be enough to get Americans through the aftermath. And Ben joins us for today's Business Week Economics. He's on the phone in New York City. Ben, so what's going on here? Well, for the longest time, economists have been worried about the fact that there's a big chunk of Americans that just don't seem to be saving very much money. So if you ask people, can you handle a $400 expense, about two in five Americans say, no, uh, actually, if if that came along, if I had a car repair bill or something, I would actually have to go into credit card debt to handle it. I don't have $400 in cash sitting around. And that was before this crisis. So when this crisis hit, it, there's a bit, just been a lot of worry about, like, what what is this going to do, especially if it goes on too long? So as you said, right now, things look pretty good. There's um, government stimulus money has gone out and people just aren't spending as much money. But um, my story is just basically about what happens as time goes on. And there's some reasons to really worry about American households. Yeah, I mean, the the numbers here are really scary, as you say, uh, Ben. So what is the, I mean, is there a remedy here? I mean, the market, as Carol mentioned, is rising on the possibility of more stimulus. Is more stimulus the, the answer or uh, what happens? I think, I think more stimulus is definitely part of it. But the real problem these households are facing is, so you have, People that aren't saving, right? But you'd actually be surprised that um, about half the people who live sort of hand to mouth, that they're not able to save, about half of them actually have some middle class wealth. They're actually mm. middle class. They're not poor. And that's because what they're doing is they're putting a lot of their wealth in retirement accounts and in their homes. And then that just makes it so much harder to access that money um, uh, in an emergency, it, it, basically, it's the same liquidity problems we face in the financial crisis for for banks. It's the same liquidity problems households are potentially going to face if there isn't the kind of stimulus, isn't the kind of um, uh, aren't, aren't the kind of benefits for say the unemployed or for small business owners that are shut down. 
um, if those things go away, then, then households are going to be really uh, having to do things like cash out of retirement accounts, which we could mean selling at the exact wrong time. Yeah. It could mean uh, taking out uh, you know, home equity loans, even selling homes, um, just, just to be able to survive. Yeah, and that's the, that's the tough part, right? So even if they've created some wealth, whether it's in their retirement accounts or even in their homes, they may be forced to tap into, the, into that. And that's really unfortunate, right? Because those are the things that are going to carry them in those later years as they get older. Right. And the, the really troubling thing is, is when this is happening to, say, people in their 50s or 60s who are getting close to retirement, they don't have time to go have a new career um, and, and restart that, that 401k, like the money in there is really valuable to them. And um, it, you could really have some people who are getting close to retirement who really have, have, have a lot to worry about. Well, and it must be frustrating for a lot of folks, Ben, because in some ways, you know, saving for retirement, I mean, we, we're sort of beaten. We're, we beat people into that, right? It's like, save your money, save your money, put it, put it aside. And so to be in this situation where folks have to dip into that is... Uh, beyond disappointing. I mean, it's troubling to some extent. Yeah. And the, there's a, some really good policy questions about that. Like, should we be encouraging so much retire, so much retirement savings at the, at the expense of, say, an, a rainy day fund? And there are actually some people who say, hey, we should really be encouraging middle class people to have these rainy day funds. Mm. Somehow, maybe you can kind of keep it off limits somehow. But we should get people to save for, for emergencies, like, like, as I said, like a car repair bill. Yeah. Like if you can't handle a $400 expense, that's really a problem for, uh, for getting to work every day, um, potentially. And, and so, um, but really, I, don't, I'm not, I wouldn't blame any of these people for, for putting all their money right. in retirement accounts and right. housing. I mean, there's, there's a tax incentive to do so. Uh, for both of those things. You, and, and you're actually going to get a higher rate of return if, if you do that as long as nothing goes wrong. And of course, what's happening now is something went wrong. And we're not even tapping those people who don't have those retirement plans right. or those people who don't even have enough money to be able to afford a home. So they can't even tap into that ac- equity if they wanted to. So it's it's a tough situation. Ben, thank you so much. And I think it's really timely, especially just coming off of uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin and Carmen Reinhardt, talking about the outlook and what kind of recovery we might see on the other side. Ben Steverman is personal finance editor at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City. City. And check him out on Twitter as well as at Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We turn now to Nick Lieber to talk about small business owners still struggling. This has been... I'm sorry. Um, we are uh, we're continuing to look at this story and just try and figure it out. So tell us what's going on uh, with this story. Uh, hi, hi. This is Nick Lieber. Um, I'm a contributor to to Bloomberg Business Week, and we've been doing a series about how Main Street businesses are dealing with the pandemic, and there have been a number of small business administration relief programs and other programs uh, to try to help them. And it's been kind of uneven and kind of choppy. And the businesses, many of the smallest ones, have been having a hard time navigating the programs. There's the Paycheck Protection Program, which we've heard a lot about, um, and which the application deadline is June 30th. There's still over $100 billion available to independent contractors and to small employers 
Um, there's the EIDL program. There, there are a bunch of different programs. There's, there's been a bunch of, of conflicting information. Um, and I think for the smallest business owners, it's been a frustrating well, process. Yeah, no doubt about it, Nick. And and listen, there's a lot going on on our end, so forgive us if we were a little crazy getting yeah, we're into li- you. I, my apologies, Nick. We, we've, all good, all good. It's just, you know, it's just one of those days. It Tuesdays are those days. days where we're always like, ah. So all, listen. I, I completely get it. I, I, no, no need, please, no need to. You're very busy. No need to. Because I've got to <laughs> totally, totally cool. I have to say, Jason and I talked to a lot of CEOs, and we've talked to a lot of members of the small business community. Just yesterday, we talked with Todd Leff, who was the CEO at Hand and Stone Massage and Facial Spot. They have a bunch of franchisees across the country, and about half of them were able to tap into the PPP virus uh, relief program from the government. And he said, you know, they worked with their franchisees to make sure that they could get into it. But it's not been so easy for everyone. So you guys do this great story and continue the great coverage um, in the magazine about how to do it. So what should they be thinking? Because that PPP program, right, the application now deadline is June 30th. So it's just around the corner. So what what do people need to be thinking about and where they, if you are a small business owner, you can still tap into? Um, I I mean, I think you can go to, there's an advocacy group's website that has a list of lenders, i.e. banks and others that are still accepting applications and you don't need to be an existing customer. So you can go to Small Business Majority's website and you can find a list of lenders that will take your application even if you're not an existing customer. You can apply for up to $10 million and and then you can see if you get it. That's part one. Part two, of course, is getting that loan forgiven. And the SBA has recently released new rules making the forgiveness process, in theory, easier. So those, I think, are the two things to keep in, in mind. One, that there are still lenders that will help you access the money. And two, that in theory, the forgiveness guidelines are easier. Yeah, it's interesting to to have seen this, you know, through the eyes of a lot of small businesses, uh, Nick, because it was challenging on the front end. And even uh, that notion of you have to be a customer, you don't have to be a customer. I mean, that so much of this was not clear at the beginning. And I do wonder if businesses who aren't smart enough to read Bloomberg Business Week and your coverage, you know, even realize, you know, some of how this is has evolved because it certainly, and this is not a no shade to anyone, but it certainly wasn't perfect and easy to understand from the beginning. Oh yeah, there was a lot of conflicting information. It's the rules have changed. There are multiple programs. There's another program called EIDL, which used to to make loans, not not forgivable loans, but loans after disasters of up to $2 million, it's been reduced to $150,000. Confusingly, when you apply, you can't put the amount you actually would like to borrow. They assess you and they give you what they give you. Even more confusingly, (laughs) they will also give you up to $10,000 as a grant. You get $1,000 per employee. Add, add, you know, and to to your point, Jason, add, add to all of that, the fact that if you're really, you know, you run your, you're a hairstylist, you run a hardware store, you're running a pretty small business, you don't have a CPA, you don't have a lawyer, you're trying to figure this stuff out. Is this a loan? Is this a grant? So I think it's, it's, been, it's been really tricky for a lot, of, a lot of the smallest businesses. 
And let's not forget, just got about 30 seconds here. You've got the Main Street Lending Program from the Fed. We heard Jay Powell talk about that a lot. There's also an employee retention credit. I mean, there's pandemic unemployment assistance. I mean, and of course, there's state programs. I mean, this is really a helpful article, and we're going to make sure we put it out on Twitter, Nick, because I do think um, some small businesses, they just don't have the capacity. They're just trying to stay alive, and they don't even know what's out there. So this is a really helpful guide to it. Nick, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Bloomberg Business Week contributor. Nick Leiber uh, joining us on the phone from Brooklyn. I have to say, Jason, this series um, that Business Week has been doing, their Business Week Small Business Survival yes, Guide, which you can great. find out more at Bloomberg.com. These stories have been very specific, lots of details, and just telling you here's what you need to do, here's how you can go about maybe finding some assistance for your small business. And even the way they're laid out. I love the way they're laid out because it's like, bing, 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 bing. This totally. is what you need to know about this one. It's very, uh, very useful. It's the sort of thing you can send around to the small business owners that you know and love and uh, hope that they can take advantage of some of this. And, and I do go back to that conversation, as you mentioned yesterday, yeah. uh, with the CEO of Hand and Stone, because if you were able to participate in this, I mean, it, it was the difference between surviving and not in, in many cases. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. And back with us is Eric Clark, Portfolio Manager of Rational Dynamic Brands Fund, on the phone from San Diego. That fund, by the way, beating just about all of its peers uh, this year and over the past three years. Over the past three years, Jason, it's been up on average 18% annually. So really a consistent top performer. I thought you were going to pour one out for the segue. I know. I yeah. was. Dean Kamen. I wonder what he has to say yeah, about that. Yeah, I know. Right? We should catch up with him. We anyway. Will. Okay. Uh, it's like to talk to Eric Clark, though. Um, guessing you're not uh, tootling around on a Segway there in San Diego, though. But there's some cool but Segway. you could be. You could be. I mean, there's some cool Segway tours around San Diego, I'm sure, Eric. As long as I wear a helmet, right? Exactly. Yes. That's exactly right. wear a helmet, Dad. All right. So what do you make of this market? Where are you looking at a time where it feels like everybody's enthusiastic about just about everything? <laughs> it makes me nervous. Yeah. It always makes me nervous when everybody's too excited about anything or when everybody's too scared about everything. So uh, we've actually been trimming into this strength. We're at the top end of the range. And that's, you know, that's kind of part of our process, you know, sell at the at the top end of the range and then and then, you know, raise some cash and then be able to buy at the bottom end of the range, because I feel like we're going to stick to this higher than average volatility, which just gives you bigger ranges that you can trade uh, versus invest. So that's that's kind of where we're focused. So wait, Eric, so if you're trimming into the strength, does that mean you're just because some stocks have had a significant run up that their positions have just gotten too large? So you're just kind of, you know, reallocating a little bit or are you increasing cash because you feel like we're just at a bit of a top here well i feel like we're we're closer to a short-term top but we, you know with some of the names some of these tech stocks and and digital payment stocks have just gone completely insane i, I mean you know shopify amazon spotify uh paypal square trade desk you know some of those names have just been tremendous performers 
And, and I, I still think July earnings will be a little bit more of a realization that things are probably getting better on the margin, but maybe not as good as the stocks uh, and, and their performance over the last month or two. So, you know, just kind of risk managing, trimming some of those positions that got a little bigger than I would like, given, you know, the fundamentals. We're, we're pretty disconnected. And I think most people would agree with that. So where do you add in a, in a market like this? Because there have been some some stocks that have, have taken some hits here. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're adding to some of the names that have pulled back. You know, I've added to Lulu when it pulled back. Um, I added to Facebook when it pulled back. Uh, added to Home Depot. Uh, I mean, Sherwin-Williams. You know, we're, we're selling some of the sexy stuff and adding to some of the boring stuff. You know, a Domino's Pizza uh, a Walmart, some of that stuff. And, and that just gives me a little bit more balance between, you know, being all in on the really sexy, um, you know, kind of high tech uh, brands, high beta brands, and, and just getting a little bit more balance. And, and we're back down to, you know, having seven or eight percent in cash that I love to use as transitional cash because the market always gives you an opportunity to buy something on a dip. Yeah. What do you make of Starbucks here? I mean, that's a, a pretty radical move that they made a couple weeks back, you know, sort of closing stores, shifting to this walk up, pick up, drive through uh, model. It feels like it says something about at least where they think we're going in terms of the new world order. Yeah, I think I think the the road might be a little bumpy for for Starbucks, but I think they're doing the right thing. They're, they are taking a look at their footprint, identifying where they can expand, where they can get better lease uh, prices, where they can add the drive through capabilities. Um, so I, I think they're doing everything that they need to do for a, any, you know, the, the, you get a, a pandemic or something like this and it, and it shows you where you have some holes in your business model and the smart companies try to fix those holes and, and I think they'll, be, they'll come out stronger on the other end. Just like most of the best brands that have the, the, the footprint locally, they're going to now get a chance to get better real estate prices, uh, better locations for expansion if they have the capital and they have the really relevant brands. So the, the Chipotles and the, the, the Lulus and, um, and Starbucks, they're going to be able to expand, and that's going to add to growth over time. What are some of the trends you think coming off the virus, Eric, that will stay with us and that might shape your strategy longer term here? Well, I think the exercise, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, we see more people outside mm -hmm. just because they're a little bit pent up. And I, and I think that, that people are getting in shape again. It's summertime. And I think the trend of just feeling better and, and, and exercising and the, that feeds into the athleisure with the Nike and the Lulu. And then I just think the e-commerce thing is just going to continue. I, if you were an e-commerce user, there's nothing that's going to change that. But if you were a laggard and you were forced to do that and you've realized how easy that process is with an Amazon or, or whoever your favorite brands are, I think you're going to start continuing to do that and really focus on the brands where you really have a great experience at the shopping level, like a Lulu. Um, that, that, that's going to, you're going to focus on those physical stores where you love it, but you're also going to use e-commerce as a way to, you know, streamline your day and be more efficient. And that, that leads into a big overweight in Amazon still. 
And I know, Jason, you guys as a family do a lot of stuff online and a yeah. lot of apps. We do too, but it's interesting having conversations. I talked to somebody just this morning. They're like, yeah, we did our first order you know, through Instacart as a result of being shut down right. you know, several months ago. So it's, I do think that there, it's an environment that Eric's right, you know, like we've heard from others, that people are doing things differently. And they're like, okay, this wasn't so hard. I like it and, right. it, and may stay with it. And so I think that's the trend. Yeah. And so what do you worry the most about sort of disrupting this market, Eric? Well, I, I think the unemployment claims and the support that we're getting, you know, if Congress decides to drag their heels a little bit, there's a lot of people. I mean, millions of people who are going to find themselves with not having some of the support that they have and they don't have a job. And if it's harder to find a job. I mean, that that's certainly an issue. So I, I hope that they they do what they need to do to support this economy and the, and the population of the unemployed um, while, while we're kind of getting back to normal with with the uh, companies feeling better about hiring again. So that always worries me. July earnings again, not that they're going to be particularly bad, but maybe they're just not as good as yeah. the stock market right. indicates. And then I and then I always worry about the election that, that w- that'll come over you know, when we get in through the through the rest of the year. But the July earnings and I think the, the, the support the Congress is kind of giving people, I think, are the bigger issues because those are those are near term that we have to focus on. Well, and the Secretary of Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin, already said second quarter, not expecting much, but expects to start to see a recovery come the third quarter and into later this year. Uh, Eric Clark, thank you so much. Portfolio Manager at Rational Dynamic Brands Fund uh, joining us on the phone from San Diego. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.